0: We're going to be in Mark 16. So we look at the last few verses <clears throat> this morning. My dad always liked to tell jokes. He got them from reading newspapers and Reader's Digest and other such sources. And then he would tell them at dinner parties or church uh, you know, events or on trips and just pretty much wherever he could get an audience. Uh, some of them were okay, and most of them were really corny. Uh, I still remember a few. As I was studying this last part of Mark and the idea of the Great Commission and telling the world the good news, it struck me that uh, the vast number of Christians think the good news is only about whether or not you're going to heaven when you die, but that's not really what Jesus talked about, and it's not what we see his disciples talking about after that. But, but in that vein, one of my dad's jokes came to mind, and so I want to share it with you all. Uh, my dad wasn't a great golfer, but he enjoyed the game and played with his business associates, and so he had a lot of golfing jokes. I, I never liked golfing at all. I was terrible at it. Uh, So anyway But I remember this joke So this is the one I'm going to tell you There was this golfer who really loved the game And was very concerned about whether or not There were golf courses in heaven So one day he went to talk with his priest And he asked him Father are there golf courses in heaven Where I can tee up when I pass on from this life And the priest was unsure And asked for a day or two to pray about it And So a couple days later the golfer returned And asked the priest if God had given him an answer And the priest replied, well, I've prayed about it, and God did give me an answer. Now I have good news and bad news. Well, what's the good news? The golfer asked excitedly. The priest responded, the good news, brother, is that there are, in fact, a good number of courses in heaven, and each of them is really spectacular in its own way, without a doubt, better than anything you have ever seen here on earth. Well, that sounds amazing, the golfer exclaimed. But then what's the bad news? priest looked a bit nervous and sort of bit his lip before finally saying, you have a tea time at 8.30 tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> Strange what you remember, isn't it? But the whole point of the joke sort of plays with the idea of salvation being about going off to heaven where everything is great when everything Jesus said about the good news was that it was coming here. I'm not entirely sure when the idea of salvation being strictly about heaven and hell first became a thing. Maybe it was the revivalist preachers back in the 17 and 1800s during what is known as the first and second great awakenings. Uh, men like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, and Charles Finney preached fiery sermons about the fate of our eternal souls. And it was the start of what is known as sort of that fire and brimstone preaching, and elements of that are still around today in a lot of places. And while we certainly believe in heaven and hell, and that our choices in this life matter and impact us as we move on to the next, we also believe that the kingdom of God that Jesus and his disciples proclaimed wasn't just some futuristic ideal. Jesus talked about these things in present tense. And when his disciples went out to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, they didn't talk about it in terms of going off to heaven or hell when they died. They spoke of it in terms of something people could be a part of and experience right then and there. They offered people a tangible kingdom that they could encounter in their present lives, and it was unlike any other kind of kingdom they had ever known. So this morning, as we wrap up our study in the Gospel of Mark, we need to keep in mind that the thing Jesus wanted his disciples to do was to proclaim his death and resurrection, and that he was seated at the right hand of the Father as king. That an entirely new kingdom had come into being already as a result of his actions and that they could become citizens of that kingdom by trusting in him and what he had done. They didn't have to wait till the end of time to be taken away somewhere to a kingdom up in the clouds or somewhere else beyond them. They could come into contact with Jesus and his kingdom where they were because it was everywhere. Many of us have been trained to think of God's kingdom only in terms of the afterlife, but it was it's clear in Scripture that it had already begun, that it's already here. You know, wherever we are and wherever we gather and pray and praise and sing and fellowship together, but that's the beginnings, the first tastes of what the kingdom is. Because Jesus is already seated at the right hand of the Father as King, his kingdom is already underway and active and real. And as we are about to see, he wanted his disciples to understand that and to proclaim it throughout the world. So, follow along with me as we read from Mark 16, beginning in verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. May God bless the reading of His word. Okay, so we know from last week that Jesus had already appeared to Mary Magdalene uh, and the other women who were with her there at the tomb, and then the two disciples that uh, Luke fills in were on the road to Emmaus and that whole story. But as we pick up the story here, he appeared to the 11. And it's 11 because Judas was dead already by this point. Uh, These 11 disciples, the the sort of inner circle, uh, were still pretty much in hiding. We see that they were reclining at table, which sounds leisurely, but don't let the casual-sounding language fool you. They reclined because they didn't use chairs. They sat on the floor, and the table was raised only a few inches, uh, so they would lay on the floor and eat. Uh, But these guys were still in hiding, still fearful. They had heard at least five different people, maybe more, tell them Jesus was alive, but they didn't believe it and then Jesus appeared. And he rebuked the eleven for not trusting that he was alive. After all, as we saw a week ago, he had told them at least three times, and probably a whole lot more, that he would be killed and would rise again. And yet here they were. If we took a poll this morning, and I asked everyone if they believed that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive, I'm pretty sure all our hands would go up, because that's one of the most important parts of our faith, right? But how many of us live like it? How many of us are out there telling other people about Jesus being alive and king of all creation and what that means for us and then doing the things that go along with that? How many of us have gone out into the world around us and actively proclaimed those things? Or is it that we are pretty much exactly like the 11? Fearful, hiding, anxious, completely devoid of hope at this point, or peace, or joy. How many of us are willing to love our neighbors if it means a lot of effort and a long-term investment in their well-being? Maybe Jesus needs to rebuke us. Maybe we need to see ourselves in this story by understanding that in a lot of ways, we are ultimately no different than the disciples. That even though we claim to believe what's really going on is that we think this is a good story, even a true story, but we totally fail to realize the bigger implications that it places on us. Because this is not just a nice story. And it's not just a true story. This story is about an established reality that we are now a part of, and belong to, and owe our lives to, and have a calling to carry out with every fiber of our being in every possible opportunity that we get. So many of us have gotten so focused on all the wrong things, on things that are not kingdom things, things that will not display the kingdom to others, things that are, in fact, in direct opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. So while it may seem harsh for Jesus to rebuke the disciples here, it was necessary. And it was, in fact, an act of love. He wasn't holding a lightning bolt ready to strike them all dead. He wanted them to grasp the enormity of what had happened. And then he wanted them to tell others about it. So. Who have you told about Jesus this week? Who do you know that needs to hear about Jesus and how he died and rose again to save them from all their wrong choices and all the baggage that they carried with them? Who in your life needs the hope or peace or joy that knowing and trusting in Jesus as savior and king brings? I'll be honest, I've been really bad at this. Over the past few months, though, as I've studied this story and everything Mark reveals to us about Jesus and his kingdom, I've been convicted. And so I've tried to be more intentional about talking to people and then bringing Jesus into those conversations. Because, I mean, if we aren't willing to do that, we should be rebuked. And if we still aren't willing to do that, we should just stay home on Sundays and watch golf or something. After rebuking the eleven, Jesus told them to go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We talked a bit about this Wednesday at Bible Study and had a really good discussion there. And I'm not sure if we all agreed about the terminology Jesus used of the whole creation, like whether that meant we should be proclaiming Jesus as king to the wind and the trees and the mountains and animals, sort of like St. Francis of Assisi, or if it just meant all the people we meet. But either way, I think we all agreed that the disciples had work to do, and so do we. Because this calling is ours as well. The Great Commission didn't come with an asterisk and an expiration date. It wasn't just the job of those first disciples, it's ours as well. So whether you are out there telling other people about Jesus, or you mix it up and Tell both people and the wild javelinas that you come across, the mission is to be vocal about the reality that Jesus is alive and is king and that people can be a part of his kingdom. Part of how that becomes a reality is through following Jesus in baptism. And this is incredibly important, not in a legalistic way, like either get baptized or go to hell. It's not like that. It's not what I mean. But if we're going to claim to believe in and follow Jesus, then our lives should look like his, and he got baptized. It was by his cousin John, but the whole point was that the baptism was a matter of both obedience and purpose, which means it's important. Whether we think of it as a sacred rite or a symbolic act, baptism serves as a marker. It marks our entrance into the kingdom that Jesus established. It it doesn't make that happen, it marks it. Understand the difference. Jesus wanted his disciples telling others about him and his kingdom and then leading those people through the waters of baptism to mark them out as his people, citizens of his new and better kingdom that his death and resurrection had brought about. In the second part of verse 16, Jesus gave a stern warning that whoever did not believe the message would be condemned. And when we hear that word, our minds might tend to paint a picture of an actively angry God casting evil people into hell. As if those fire and brimstone sermons were still our only real understanding of these things. But that's not really what Jesus was saying here. It's likely Jesus was speaking to the disciples in Aramaic, but when Mark wrote it down, the Greek word that he used is katakrino, which is a compound word made from kata, which means down, against, according to. It basically intensifies whatever word that you couple it with. And then the other word is krino, which means to judge, to decide, or to separate. Together, the idea is of a judge separating people according to some standard, setting them apart in two different ways. And in this case, the picture is of Jesus' death and resurrection being the standard. Those who heard the good news that Jesus is the living king and placed their trust in him would follow him in baptism, entering his kingdom. Those who refused or rejected the message would not. This isn't Jesus casting fire and brimstone here. It's Jesus making it plain that we have a choice to make and that our choice has both immediate and long term implications. His warning isn't do this or I will destroy you. It's basically if you ignore this, if you refuse to be rescued, then you will be destroying yourself. Because the judgment is that only those who turn away from all the other kings and kingdoms and place themselves in the hands of their creator will experience the hope and peace and joy of his everlasting presence from now on. We want to think there's another way, an easier way, a way that allows us to remain in control of our own lives a way that allows us to continue building our little kingdoms. We want to think we can sort of nod our heads in Jesus' general direction and then keep doing things our way with his blessing. But Jesus made it clear that that's not an option. Our kingdoms must come to an end. They must be handed over. The throne of our lives must be vacated and offered to the one true king. We're so incredibly opposed to that idea. That's the very reason why we need divine intervention in our lives. We can't manage to surrender on our own. If it's completely up to us, pretty sure we would all reject Jesus and keep running things our own way. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to move us, to awaken us, to open our eyes to the truth. And once that has happened, we make a choice, Jesus or me. Jesus was simply warning that choosing me will end badly. It will separate us, it will cut us off from all the goodness of his love, not because he doesn't want us, but because we don't want him. We don't want to acknowledge his kingdom and his authority. As an example of his authority, Jesus explained that as the disciples went around proclaiming the good news of the gospel, there would be some unique and miraculous signs that would serve as evidence of the reality of the kingdom. And for the most part, they're they're sort of the same kinds of signs that he performed during his ministry. He would cast out demons. You know about that, and speak in new tongues, and I think Pentecost is a good example of that when you get the disciples suddenly speaking to people in their own languages, having never learned or studied any of those languages. Uh, Then you get picking up serpents, Uh, and and I'm I'm trying not to say too much here, but I don't think it means handling rattlesnakes in the service. Um, We know that Paul got bit by a serpent at one point in his ministry. And then it didn't affect him at all. And so God has the power to protect us in certain circumstances if that's God's will. Uh, He also says drink deadly poison. And there's really no example of that in the New Testament. So we don't know uh, where that came into play. Uh, But I would assume that doesn't mean go drink strychnine or anything like that. Just if it happened to happen and God will protect you, that's how that works. And then healing the sick being the the final thing. And we see that all through the Gospel accounts and the Acts and different places. All of these follow a pattern of revealing the authority and power of Jesus over his creation. All of them serve as a taste of what the goodness of life in his kingdom is like. So, how many demons have you cast out in Jesus' name lately? Anyone? How many languages have you picked up miraculously without studying them? How many times have you been poisoned and mysteriously survived? Do any of these things actually apply to us? Or is there a common theme running through each of them that then manifests itself now in a way that we may not necessarily think about? For instance, Jesus was healing people. What if building and maintaining hospitals that research treatments and cures and care for the sick and dying is a way that we can go about healing people? Jesus cast out demons. What if building and maintaining mental health facilities with diagnostic services and counseling services, what if that's one of the ways that we can go about that? Jesus told his followers that they would do greater works than he did. What if we have the ability to not just heal a single person, but establish a means of healing lots of people? I mean, isn't that kind of what Baylor Medical Hospitals and and the different other hospitals, isn't that what they're about? I mean, congrats to Baylor on winning the national championship. Good job in basketball. But isn't there an entire approach to medicine, which is kind of one of the things that they're known for? Isn't that based on this specific ideal that Jesus laid out here? I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for healing. Of course we should. Of course we should. But in the broader purpose of God's will, isn't it possible that our dedication to such things is not only vitally important, but a window into the kingdom of God? A revelation of his ultimate desire to heal and mend and bring justice. A glimpse into the kind of kingdom that Jesus has established and is still establishing through us. So as an example, I looked up Baylor's mission statement, their medical mission statement, and here it is. Baylor Medical exists to serve all people by providing personalized health and wellness through exemplary care, education, and research as a Christian ministry of healing. And I'm not saying Baylor's the only one. There's others, obviously. But doesn't that reveal the kingdom of God? Isn't that kind of what that looks like? And the point is that there are multiple ways to reveal God's kingdom. And the main thing we have to do isn't to be concerned about snakes or poison or looking for demons. It's being willing to do whatever Jesus sets before us, as a means of proclaiming that he is the living king, whatever that looks like. It may be miraculous in some way or other, and if so, go forward. It may turn out just to be really mundane sounding. If we are consistently telling people about Jesus' death and proclaiming him as the resurrected and living king of all creation, things are going to happen. Moving into verse 19, we get a very specific picture of Jesus ascending his throne as king of this new kingdom of heaven and earth, and the two are coming back together. and that, That's exactly what he said would happen on numerous occasions, right? And the implications of this are massive, not only for the disciples, but for us as well. It means the world we long for and pray for and hope for isn't waiting to be unveiled sometime way off in the future. It has begun, and it is a reality in the present. If we look around at the state of the world, we may think we would rather take God up on that 8.30 tea time, but the fact is that however bad the world might be, the Holy Spirit in us is the thing holding everything together in the most wonderful ways the kingdom of God is growing. Like a young pine shooting up through the debris of a forest fire, or grass taking root atop cool lava flows like it does in Hawaii. Things that seem so devastating can, over time, be the fertile soil for beauty and growth. And we can be a part of that. We can play a role in revealing God's kingdom by nurturing the good, in this world, the very goodness of God's creation. In verse 20, that's exactly what we see, these fearful, hiding, anxious disciples who until that very moment were completely devoid of hope and peace and joy. They were changed. They went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord was with them, and the Lord is with us as well not like they had special powers, and we don't either, not of ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the power moving in and through both them and us. We know that within just a few days of, of these events, the disciples experienced Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and after that, they went out and boldly proclaimed the gospel message everywhere they went, even to the point where most of them were killed for it. That same Holy Spirit that was working in them and through them is in us and can very well work through us. Let's just get out of our own way. In the Bible study for the week, I asked how the story ends. That's sort of a trick question that I pulled on y'all. Because even though we have come to the end of the book of Mark, the story is still unfolding. still becoming. It's still being revealed in us and through us as we surrender our will to the will of Jesus and become sacrificial servants in his kingdom, following the way of our Savior and King who sacrificed himself and served us. And it all comes down to this. Jesus is alive, and he is king, and we can be a part of his kingdom if we will turn away from chasing after our own give ourselves fully over to him by trusting in what he did for us and what he did for his creation that he loves. This is the kingdom that we proclaim. Will you pray with me?